Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. The Jewish concept of the unity of God, that not only that there's one God, monotheism, the belief in monotheism, but also the idea that God is the only reality. There is no other reality but God. God is the only reality. And this is expressed in the Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem that God is one, God is an absolute unity. As we say in the next paragraph, in the morning prayer, that you are, you referring to God, you are the same as you were before you created the world, so too are you alone after you created the world. As the prophet says, nothing changes. God doesn't change, is not affected, is not changed by the world. The world has no impact on God. God remains totally unaffected and unchanged by creation. And to understand this, how can you say that the world does not affect God? That God remains absolutely alone, just like He was alone before He created the world? How can you say that? God creates the world. We exist. So yes, we're not an independent existence because God needs to constantly create us and to sustain us. Because the Jewish idea of creation is not a one-time event that God created the world 57, 6,700 years ago, 5,767 years ago, and then the world runs on automatic pilot. God has to constantly create the world. Something from nothing. Because the world doesn't exist in its source. You're not going to find matter in energy. So how do you get from energy to matter? How do you get from something spiritual to something material? It's a, it's a miracle. It's a, cre- it's, an act of, it's a creative act. And God has to constantly create the world. So the world, to then sustain the world. So the world doesn't have any independent existence. The existence of the world is nothing other than the divine energy, which is God's speech, which is... When God speaks and He brings the world into existence, God is constantly speaking and is constantly creating and sustaining the world. So the world doesn't have any independent existence. But nevertheless, God is speaking and bringing the world into existence. So how could you say that God remains alone? Just like He was alone before He created the world, He remains alone after He created the world. That nothing changed. He hasn't changed. How can you say that God is not effective and it makes no difference the world does exist, doesn't exist, How can you say that the world has no meaning and significance to God? God remains alone, just like He was alone before He created the world. Take the human being, for example. The human being, the body and the soul, the body-soul connection. What happens without the soul? The body disintegrates, the body disappears eventually. The body is totally dependent on the soul to sustain it. Nevertheless, you're not going to say that in comparison to the soul, the body doesn't exist. The body has no significance. Absolutely not. The soul is affected by the body. The body is not healthy. If the body is uncomfortable, the body is not healthy, it has an impact on the soul. Your soul can't think straight. If you're in pain, the soul can't think. The soul is affected by the body. The body is cold, the body is too hot. It affects the soul. You can't say even though the soul is primary. And without the soul, the body is nothing. The body is a corpse. And ultimately the body disintegrates. So yes, the soul, the body is totally dependent on the energy and the soul and the life force and the vitality of the soul. But you can't say that in comparison to the soul, the body is nothing. How can you say the body is nothing? There's a body-soul connection, the body-mind connection. The body affects the soul. Of course the soul affects the body. That goes without saying. Most illnesses actually originate in the soul. As the Zohar says, when a person is depressed, it leads to illness. A person is angry, it leads to illness. Physical illness, the body is just a symptom of the soul. A projection of the soul. So of course energy affects matter. But it works the reverse too. Matter affects energy. The body, the soul is affected by, by, the, by the body. You can't say that the soul, the body doesn't exist. Just like the soul was alone before it entered into the body, the soul is alone after it entered the body. You can't make such a statement. 
the soul is affected by the body. It's a two-way street. They interact. It's, they become one. But with Hashem, with God, it's not so. God, we say that Hashem, God is one. God is not chained. God is not affected. God creates the world, sustains the world, and is constantly speaking and bringing the world into existence. And yet, he's totally alone, unaffected, unmoved by the whole, the whole world. The world has no significance to God, as if it doesn't exist. As if it never happens, as if it doesn't exist. It means nothing. How can you say that? How is that possible? So he uses an analogy. He uses an analogy of speech. God created the world with his utterances, through speaking. By Yom Hashem, and God says there should be light, and there was light. God says there should be animals, and there was animals. God creates everything in this world comes as a result of God's speech. So just like when a human being, when a human being speaks, when we speak, where do these letters and words come from? The letters and words that we speak come from within us, from ourselves. The words that we use to speak originate in the, in the mind, in thought. First we think, and then we speak. Where do the words come from, the words that we think? They come from, they're describing, they're communicating, they're revealing an emotion. You're communicating something that you feel. Now, are there any words? Are there any words or letters in the raw emotion? No. In the raw love, in the raw emotion, you don't love in French or in English or in Russian. It's, it, there are no words. It's beyond words. All the words in the world can't adequately describe a genuine emotion. So there are no words. When you get to the raw concept, the raw understanding, there are no words. It's something that totally transcends language, culture. It's the raw understanding. There are no words. Yet, you find the right words to express it, to think about it. So where did these words come from? These words come from the mind and the heart. And the truth is, if you go deeper, the words even come from a deeper source, from the subconscious. And the proof is, when a person speaks, do you have any idea how you're speaking? We have to take piano lessons or guitar lessons or violin lessons. Do you have to take lessons to learn how to speak? Do we need speech therapy? Teach us how to speak. Thank God not. Special needs. People who are wounded need therapy to teach them how to speak. And it's like pulling teeth. You know how difficult it is? We take it for granted. We don't even think twice about it. It's unselfconscious. We have no clue what happens, how we speak. When you play the piano, you know exactly what you're doing. Everything has a key. You have to press here. You know how to play the violin. You have to learn precise. You have to make the motion. Do you have any idea how you speak, what you're doing when you speak, how you move the lips? Most people go through their entire lives, and if you ask them, how do you speak? What happens when you speak? They have no clue. They never thought about it. If you learn the Torah, the Torah teaches you. If you're aware, there's five different groups of, of letters. Beis, Vav, Mem, comes from moving the lips together, putting the lips together. But it's only when you think about it, you become conscious of it. Otherwise, you're totally unaware, blissfully unaware. And it's not necessary to speak. You just speak. What happens? How you speak? You take it for granted. You don't even think twice about it. What does that tell you? Where do letters come from? It's an unselfconscious act. It comes from the subconscious. It's not a conscious act. It comes from the deepest levels of the soul. So words, letters, speech come from the deepest letters of the soul, the deepest roots of the soul. And that's why words are very personal. A writer writes, every writer has their signature. You can have two writers saying the same idea, the same concept, the raw concept is the same. But how you say it, and how you express it, and you have your unique individual individuality, your unique signature. So words and letters are rooted very deeply within the soul. But yet within the soul there are no words, there are no letters. You don't, need to, you don't feel the letters there. There are no letters. It transcends letters. It transcends words. It's only later on when you start thinking about it. Okay, how am I going to express this? Or how am I going to explain this? Or how am I going to um, achieve this? Let's say you have a desire for something. Okay, how am I going to get it? So you start thinking about it. And then you come up with words and letters. And then suddenly you start feeling and sensing the words and letters. 
and you think the words and letters, and then eventually you speak the words, you communicate the words and letters. You have the language to communicate to communicate this idea, this feeling, this emotion. So the words and letters are there within the soul, but when they're, they're in the soul, all there is is the soul. All there is is the emotion, or the constant, or the soul, the subconscious. There are no words. The words and letters are just part of the soul. They're inseparable. It's not like you have a soul and you have a word. All there, are, all, there, all there is is the soul. To use another analogy, physical analogy, take a, a drop of the ocean. You want to study a drop of the ocean. So you take the drop of the ocean, you remove it from the ocean, and you take it to the laboratory, and you dissect it, you analyze it, you study it, now, when this drop of the ocean is part of the ocean, you're looking for the drop. What drop? You don't see a drop. I don't know what you're talking about. There is no drop. All I see is an ocean. You can't even find the drop. What drop? There is no drop. There is an ocean. I don't see. You can't separate the, tr- the, far- the tree from the forest. It, it, it's not a drop. An ocean. It's there, but it's not there. It's as if it doesn't exist. Not that it's not there, but it's as if it doesn't exist. Because it's not about that. It's not about a drop. It's an ocean. So too, when the letters are within the soul, all I see is the soul. What letters? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't see any letters. I'm... There are no letters. Not that the letters are not there, but it's, it's not a letters. It's the soul. So to the soul, it's, it's really, it's not about letters. All there is is a all there is is the soul. It's only when you remove the ocean, when you remove the drop from the ocean, suddenly there's a drop. I don't know if you ever went to the planetarium across the park. You know, today you're able to envision, visualize the, the, the vastness of the universe and the millions and billions and trillions and zillions of stars and and galaxies and and you start looking for earth you can't find it it's like a drop in the ocean it's not that it's not there but where is it it's not about it's not a it's a it's something else it's not it's only when you remove everything and suddenly you notice it now i notice a drop you remove the ocean I notice a drop. It's a drop. I can measure it. I can define it. I can, I can dissect it. I can categorize it. I can relate to it. I can compare it. But the truth is, it's, it's totally... It's not, a, it's not... I'm not getting the real story. The real story is that it's part of the ocean. It's part of the ocean. It's not about a drop. It's the ocean. It's in, there is no drop. All there is is the ocean. I don't even see it. I don't even notice it. It's not even there. Not that it's an illusion. The drop is not a drop. It's, I don't know. Lord saying it's an illusion, but it's something else entirely. It's not. It's not this. So the letters, the letters. While the letters are within the soul, there are no letters. It's not about letters. It's part of the soul. There's nothing but the soul. That's all there is. The raw experience, the raw emotion, the subconscious, the soul, the essence of the person. The letters are all there, but it's not, what letters? When letters? I, you don't even feel it inside yourself. You don't even know you have letters. You don't even feel words. It's only later when you start thinking about it that suddenly the words, letters become prominent. I notice words. I notice language. I notice... So, this is what the Torah is telling us. That the world is created with the ten utterances. God speaks and communicates and brings the world into existence. So the divine energy that creates the world is called the divine speech. So if a human being when a human being speaks, what are the relationship of these words and, this, and the letters and the words in comparison to the speaker, to the essence of the person who's speaking, to the person's thoughts and the person's emotions and the person's experience and the person's raw intellect and the person's subconscious and the essence of the person? What is the relationship of words to the person? It has no value, it has no significance. What words? To the person there are no words. It means nothing. It's lost. It's not, it's not words. It's not about words. It's about the person. There is nothing else. So the words don't add anything. The words don't mean anything. The words have no significance. So 
multiply that infinite times, that the entire, not only the entire universe, heaven and earth, the higher levels of consciousness, the angels, the spiritual realities, time, space, concepts, the whole known conscious universe as we know it, the material world, the physical world, the spiritual realms, the entire universe, the whole bureaucracy of existence. Not only that they are insignificant in comparison to God, but even their life source, which is God's speech, God's own divine energy that's creating it in comparison to the speaker, in comparison to God Almighty Himself, His essence. The words have no value, have no significance. And you can't even find it. And it's not, it's not about the words. It's, it's, it's something else entirely. It's God. And there is nothing else but God. So God is alone, just like He was before He created the world. He's alone after He created the world. Nothing changes. To God, nothing changes. He remains totally unaffected by creation. His speaking and the communicating, He remains totally unaffected by the fact that He spoke and the world came into being. Not like the human body, and not like the soul that's affected by the body, that the soul animates and is the life force. God is not like the soul that sustains the body and animates the body. Because the soul is affected by the body and is limited to the body. But God remains totally transcendent. It's not that God is defined by creation. Just like a human being is not defined by speaking. When you speak ten words, it doesn't exactly exhaust you, capture you, define you. It's a non-event. Nothing happened. How much did you invest of yourself in those ten words? Well, multiply that infinite times. How much did God invest in creation? What part of himself is God investing in what is creation in relation to God, to the essence of God? It's a non-event. Nothing happened. It's not like before there was God, and now there's God, and there's us. What is us? Us is the divine energy, the divine speech. What is the divine speech in comparison to God? Nothing. A non-entity, a non-event, insignificant, meaningless. doesn't even begin to even scratch the surface of the surface of the surface of what God is. So God's essence remains totally unchanged and unaffected by creation. So at the same time that God is sustaining the world and animating the world and creating the world and constantly bringing the world, thinking about us and speaking us and bringing us into existence, at the very same time, it has no significance. There's no meaning, there's no value. It has no significance. Inherently, it has no meaning, no value whatsoever in comparison to God. And that's what he's going to discuss in chapter 21. The difference between our speech in God's speech. Because a human being, yes, speech in relation, in comparison to the speaker, when, the wor- when those very same words and letters were within their source, within the mind, within the heart, within the raw experience, within the raw emotion or the raw concept, or when they were in the subconscious, in the essence of the person, rooted in the essence of the person, they don't exist. It means nothing. That anything, it means nothing. All there is is the soul. Not that there's, there's a soul and there's letters. It's not about the letters, it's about the, the person. That's all there is. But that's only while the words and letters are within the source. But when you do think of the words and you do come up with language and you do speak, there is speech. Speech is something. When you speak, the words have a life of their own. You can't take back your words too late. Once you speak, it's out there. Someone heard you. The words are gone. You can't take it back. So in a way, they do have a life of their own. They are independent. The words have a certain independence, a certain life of their own. So you would think that by God is the same thing. Yes, in relation and comparison to the essence of God, yes, words are insignificant. Words are meaningless. Words have no value. It's as if it doesn't exist. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't mean anything. But after you speak, in comparison to the words, words have a life of their own. So therefore the world which is created through the divine speech should also have a life of its own, a meaning of its own, an independent existence, a reality. So he's saying this is where the analogy to human speech breaks down. You can't compare God's speech to human speech. And that's the theme he's going to discuss in chapter 21. The nature of the divine order is not like that of a human being, a creature of flesh and blood. 
Therefore, human terms cannot adequately describe divine qualities. Thus, in our case, when a man says something, the breath of the spoken word may be sensed and is perceived as an independent entity separated from its source, namely, the ten intellectual and emotional faculties of the soul itself. While still encapsulated in its source, the word is utterly nullified. However, when it is spoken and it leaves its source, it takes on an identity of its own. This is true, however, only with regard to human speech. So even thought, thought is something that we think, think to ourselves. It's intimate, it's private. So it's still part of us. That's why a person can't stop thinking. Because it's very close, just like your soul, you're alive, you can't stop living, you can't take a recess from life, even for a second. So you can't take a recess from thinking, you're constantly thinking. Because it's very, it's, it's internal, it's private, it's intimate, no one knows what you're thinking. You can know that a person is lost in thought, the person is thinking deep thoughts, person. you can look at the frown on their face, you can think they're thinking terrible thoughts, or the smile on their face, they're thinking happy thoughts, but I have no idea what they're thinking. Unless a person is a very spiritual person, the holy people are able to read minds, able even to feel thoughts. They're able to feel another person's thoughts and they almost like read your mind. Husband and wife, after you marry a while, you can start reading each other's thoughts and <laughs> finishing each other's sentences. Uh, but that's, that's already borderline, that's bordering on the sixth, uh, sixth sense. That's already when you, your souls are in tune with each other, so you're able to feel each other and sense each other. And, but... Um, but thought is very private, very intimate. But once you speak and you communicate, the words are out there. It's, you've said it. You can't take it back. It has a life of its own. They're independent now. They're no longer dependent on you. They're no longer part of you. They're gone. You gave birth. The children left home. They're on their own. The words are out there. But with God, it's not so. Continue. But the speech of God is not, heaven forbid, separated from His divine self. For nothing is outside of him, and no place is devoid of him, so that his speech is always contained within him. See, God is different. Because a human being, you can speak to someone else, someone who's outside of you. There's a whole world outside of us. We all feel that we are the center of the universe, but nevertheless, we're finite, we're limited. There's still a whole world out there that we depend on, we rely on. There's no rugged individual can't do anything in life alone. Even the simple cup of water. You know how many people were involved in this cup of water? God created the world in such a way we all depend on each other, we all need each other. No one can go through life alone. We're very limited and finite. And we all lean on each other and each one complements each other. So therefore, when you speak, you're speaking to someone outside of yourself. You have someone to communicate to, you have someone to speak to. The problem with God is He has no one to speak to. He has no one to communicate because there's no one else but God. There's nothing else but God. There's no space empty of God. So the speech, God's speech cannot leave him. He's not that God is communicating to someone, an entity outside of himself, or to something besides himself. There is no one. There's, there's, there's no, nothing else besides God. There's no existence besides God. So who is God speaking to? Speaking to himself. So the speech can never really leave himself. Therefore, his speech is not like our speech, God forbid, just as, obviously, his thought is not like our thought, as it is written, for my thoughts are not like your thoughts, and it is also written, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Similarly, God's speech is different from human speech. It's not just God's thoughts that are different than our thoughts. All my ways are different. Everything about, firstly, when we speak, nothing happens. When God speaks, He creates a world. You know, even when God thinks, things are created, something happens. God's speech is entirely different than our speech. His thoughts are different than our thought. But when we speak, we have someone to speak to. We're communicating. God, there's no one to speak to. There's no one out. There's nothing. There's no entity outside of God. Therefore, His speech never leaves Him. When we speak, our words leave us and is heard by an outside entity. 
and therefore the words have a life of their own. But when Hashem speaks, when God speaks, it never leaves God. Because there's no space empty of God. So the words never left. question is, we know the Torah uses anthropomorphic language. Of course, God doesn't speak. God doesn't have a mouth. God doesn't have physical breath. We don't mean it in any in the physical sense. God is not a human being. God is not a giant human being sitting in heaven and speaking. But the Torah uses anthropomorphic terms, the eyes of God, the hands of God. It's trying to use language that man can relate to. But nevertheless, they have to have some similarity to man. Because we can only envision, we can only relate to things that we, can, we experience, that we know. Anything beyond our knowledge, we can't relate to. It means nothing to us. So we, we can understand the idea of speech, the idea of communication, the idea of speech. So the Torah is using an analogy, a physical analogy that God speaks. But if you're saying that God's speech is not like our speech, because the essence of speech is that speech is communicating communicating to someone outside of you where your speech leaves the person and has a life of its own so the question is if within God God's speech is not like our speech so how can you even call it speech how can the prophet say that God's speech is not like our speech it's not only not like our speech you can't even call it speech and what's the comparison? What do you mean when you say God speaks? When we speak, we know what it means. We speak and we communicate to someone outside of ourselves and we, we convey something to someone outside of ourselves and our speech has an independence, has a life of its own. But you say that when God speaks, God never leaves himself. He has no one to speak to. So the speech remains part of God. So what's the meaning of speech? You don't need speech. If you're not speaking, there's no need to speak. So what is the idea of speech? Speaking to yourself. The whole idea of speech is that you're, you're, something leaves you and you're projecting it outside of yourself. Speech is projecting yourself outside of yourself. Communicating to someone outside of yourself. Projecting what's going on inside of you, your mind, your emotions, your understanding, your ideas, and communicating it and conveying it and projecting it outside of yourself, putting it out there, putting it in the marketplace, putting it out there for people to hear and people to listen, people to for people to respond. But if he's saying that God is no one to speak to and there's no space empty of God and God's speech never left him, so what's the meaning of speech? Well, what do you mean God speaks? There's no analogy to speech. There's no meaning to it. What do you mean God speaks? How could you even call it speech? But say is different than our speech. Not only is it different, it's, then it's not speech. So, in what way is God's speech, how could you compare God's speech to human speech? What, what, what do they have in common? How could you even define it as speech? How can you call it speak? speech? Speech, God is speaking. Okay, continue, but if... But if divine speech is indeed never separated from God, how can it be described as speech at all? Human speech constitutes communication only because the spoken word becomes separated from the speaker. Thought, by contrast, because it remains within one's soul, is hidden from all but the thinker itself. But since nothing ever becomes separated from God, the term speech seemingly provides us with no understanding at all of the nature of divine communication. In explanation, the Alter Rebbe states that speech is distinguished by two characteristics. A. It reveals that which was previously hidden in the speaker's thoughts. B. It becomes separated from its source. Only the former characteristic of human speech is analogous to divine speech, which reveals to creation that which was hitherto hidden within godliness. Speech is much more than just moving your lips and breathing and speaking. The idea of speech is, there's two main parts of speech, components of speech. One is that the speech is separated from its source, unlike thought and unlike emotions obviously and intellect which is part of your soul speech leaves you speech is that part within you that you project outward that 
idea of speech has no connection to God. Because within God, you can't say God that the speech leaves God, or God is projecting outwardly. Because there's no space empty of God. This God's speech never left him. And there's no one to speak to. So that's not the idea of God's speech. But the other aspect of speech, another characteristic of speech, the main essential part of speech is that speech is about revealing that that was hidden. You don't know what a person is thinking until they speak, until they, they divulge, they reveal. By speaking, you're revealing what was hidden. You're revealing what's going on in your heart. You're revealing what's going on in your mind. You're revealing what's going on in your soul. What you're experiencing. How you're experiencing it. So you're revealing. That part of speech, that, that's the meaning and the definition of speech when we speak in terms of God's speech. The idea of God speaking versus God not speaking. When God doesn't speak, means remains hidden and concealed. When God speaks, God reveals that that was previously hidden and concealed. That's the meaning of, of the divine speech. God's speech is called speech only in order to illustrate that quality of revelation which it possesses. For just as man's speech reveals to his audience what was hidden and concealed in his thoughts, so too the emergence of the light and life force of the Ein Sof from concealment before creation into revelation through the act of creation for the purpose of creating and animating the worlds, is called speech. In this case, the audience is the created being, which, from its own perspective at least, is separated from God. Who is God speaking to? Who is God's audience? Well, who is He revealing? He's revealing Himself. But who is He revealing Himself to? He's revealing Himself to us. Because we sense ourselves as being separate from God. We sense our egos. We sense our existence. We don't sense God. We sense I. We sense ourselves as independent existence. So therefore, God is speaking, communicating and revealing, revealing Himself to us. By speaking, He's revealing His ability to create, and the difference is that when God, when we speak, we are speaking to someone, to an audience that already exists. When God speaks, His speech creates the audience. <laughs> His speech creates us. He creates the audience to whom He's revealing Himself. So the idea of speech is that God has the ability to create something from nothing. When He speaks, He reveals that ability. And he actualizes that ability and actually creates something from nothing. So just like when we speak, we reveal what's going on inside of us. So, so too within God, there is the idea of speech. And speech is like the lowest level within God. Just like when we speak, speech within us is, is next to the lowest level. After speech, you have action. Right? You have the soul, you have... The human mind, you have the heart, you have thought, you have speech, and then you have action. So speech is one of the lowest levels, right next to action. So when a person speaks, you're revealing what's going on inside of you, and you're revealing it to someone outside of yourself. So too, when God speaks, within God, it's like the lowest level within God, so to speak, that God is revealing He's revealing his ability to create and he's actualizing and revealing that ability. And by speaking, he's actually creating the world, creating the universe, creating us, creating something that, so to speak, feels outside of himself. And we become, God, we become God's audience to whom God speaks to. So yes, speech in the sense of being separate, something separate from the speaker, that that's not a good analogy to God because God's speech never becomes separate from Him because it's God speaking and it's all part of God and God is everywhere so the speech never leaves God never leaves its source when we speak our speech by definition the words leaves its source we are the source of our words the words come from us the words reveal what's going on inside of us but the words leave the source and the words have a life of their own 
we have the ability to project ourselves outwardly. By God, within God, there's no projection outside of God. There's no space empty of God. So it's, everything is within the source. There's no outside. But the idea of speech, just like by a human being, the idea of speech that you reveal something that's going on inside, you reveal, previously was concealed, and through your speech you reveal what's going on inside. That idea, this is the meaning of God's speech, that God reveals, reveals what was concealed. God reveals His ability to create by creating the world. That's what the Torah means when we speak of the divine speech. God reveals His ability to create and reveals that, that ability by creating us, by speaking and bringing us into existence. Because speech, speech, yeah, you know, you have to speak to another human being. Speech has to be, you have to communicate to someone on your level. You're not going to speak to a tree. But action affects even, you can act on a tree, you can, you can perform an action on, on a stone. It doesn't even have to be on your level. Action is like a radical leap, a total jump. There's no connection almost between the person and the action. Speech at least has some connection. You're speaking. There's a speaker, there's a communicator. Even the person who's listening also has to be on your level. So, so there's some, some relation, some connection. It's not a disembodied speech. You're speaking, there's a speaker, there's a source. But the words have a life of their own and they're heard and received in a, by someone, but also someone on your level. There's some relation to you. Action is there's almost a disconnect between the person who's doing the action and uh, the action itself. And the action, therefore the action itself could be in something that has no visible connection. On, on something that's not even on your level, like an, an, an organic life, an inanimate object. God, however, when God speaks, that is action. Because when God speaks, the world comes into being. God's speech is action. When He speaks, the world comes into being. So th that is action. So within God, this is the lowest level, so to speak, within God. God's speech. So just like within a human being, speech reveals what's going on inside, so too when God speaks, God is revealing what's going on inside of him, so to speak. God is revealing his ability to create, and therefore he creates and brings his world into existence. So that's the meaning of divine speech. We say that God speaks. Not in the sense that the speech has a life of its own and leaves God and is outside of God. Our speech is outside of us. With God, you can't say outside of God. There's no space empty of God. So it never leaves the source. God's speech never leaves the source. So it remains part of God. Not like human speech. Human speech is not part of us. It leaves us. With God, you can't say that God's speech leaves God. It's outside of God. God's speech is within the sources. Everything is within God. So what's the definition of God's speech? The definition of God's speech is God revealed himself. By actually creating the world. By actually actualizing his creative ability to create the world. That's the meaning of God's speech. Before God spoke, there was no world. And God spoke and actualized his ability to create and the world came into being. The material world as we know it and the spiritual realms and the entire universe came into being as a result of God's speech. That's the meaning of God's speech. It's the ability to reveal and to actualize that potential, to actualize that creative ability and uh, to, to implement that creative ability. That is the idea of speech. It's a revelation. Before that, God's creative ability was hidden and concealed. And then when God spoke, He revealed that ability and actualized that ability to create something from nothing. And he brought us into existence. So that's the meaning of the divine speech. God spoke and the world came into being. That's the meaning of the divine word, of the divine speech. It's revelation from God. Continue. It is these revelations of divine light and life force that comprise the ten divine utterances recorded in the Torah. Namely, and God said, Let there be light, let the earth sprout forth, and so on, by which the world was created. Likewise, all the other words of the Torah, the prophets, and the holy writings are also called speech, even though they were not revealed for the purpose of creation, since they too represent the divine revelation which the prophets perceived in their prophetic vision. Hence, when we refer to God's revelation as His speech, the analogy extends only to speech as revelation and communication, but not to speech as something separate from the speaker, an idea which is not applicable to godliness.
So you have God speaking and creating, and you have God speaking to the prophets and revealing himself and communicating. But in either of these cases, the speech is not separate from the speaker. God's speech is not separated from God. It's with all within God himself. part of God. It remains part of God. It's part of the source. It never leaves its source. And therefore, thus, Thus God's speech and thought are united with him in absolute union, just like the speech and thought of man before he actually expresses them as speech and thought, rather as they are while still in his faculty of wisdom and intellect, or as they exist in a desire or craving that are still in the heart, before they rise from the heart to the brain there to be meditated upon with the letters of thought. Just like within a human being, as we explained earlier in the last chapter, the words with which we communicate with, the language that we communicate Where did this language come from? It comes from within us. Where was this language before we actually formulated it into words and letters and language and speech? The language was included in our soul, included in our raw emotion, included in our raw intellect, included in our subconscious, included in our soul. They were there and they were part of our soul. And while they were there, all there is is really the soul. There is nothing else. It's not about language. I don't see any language. I don't see, feel any language. We are the words. I can't find it. There are no words. It's there. That's the source. But when they're within the source, all there is is the source. There is nothing else. Because it's not about words, it's not about language. It's about the experience, it's about the raw experience, it's about the raw concept, it's about the subconscious, it's about the soul, the essence of the person. There are no words. They're there, but it's not there. It means nothing. It's like, just like the drop of the ocean. The drop of the ocean is in the ocean, it's there, but I can't find it. Where is it? It's not about a drop, it's about an ocean. It's not, it's not that, it's something else entirely. It is the ocean itself. So the words and language, it's not la words, not about words, not about language. It's the soul itself. That's all there is. There is nothing else. That's, but within the human analogy, that's true while the words and the language are part of the source, are within the source. But then we do formulate the language. And then once we formulate the language, the language has an independent life of its own. And we project ourselves outwardly and the language leaves us and, and it has an independent entity. But within God, God's language never leaves the source. So God's language, even when God speaks and brings the world into existence, even while He's speaking and while He's revealing His creative ability and while He's communicating and actualizing that ability and actually creating the world and bringing us into existence, we're not in illusions, we're real. But even while He's speaking, we never left the source. The divine speech remains united in its source in the divine emotion, in the divine intellect, in the divine subconscious, so to speak, in the divine core and essence. And while God's language is united with the divine core and essence, there, are, there is no language. There are no words. There are no letters. There, are, there is no language. It's not, it's not about language. It's like a drop of the ocean. I, I can't find it. What drop of the ocean? What are you talking about? It, all there is is the ocean. All there is is God. So to God, even after He creates the world, and while He's creating the world, and while we're here, this very moment, and while we're existing in the whole universe, the whole bureaucracy of existence, while this whole tumult of life is going on, material, physical, spiritual, to God, it's like, you can't find it. What, what where, what, what is it? It's not about this. All there is is God. Nothing changed. God is alone. God was alone. And he is alone now. Just like He was alone before He created the world, He's equally alone. Nothing changed. He remains totally unaffected. Not like the soul that's affected by the body. God is creating us and animating us and sustaining us and speaking us into existence. And at this very moment, it's as if we don't exist. It has no meaning. It has no value. It has no inherent meaning and value. All there is is God. All there is is the essence of God. There is nothing else, really. That's a powerful, powerful thought. <laughs> It's beyond spiritual. Spiritual is also a creation. God is not physical and God is not spiritual. Spiritual is also created. God created heaven and earth. God is beyond the highest level that we can imagine. Spirituality, higher levels of consciousness. You know, just to use even the human analogy, the part, the part of, of reality that we are able to see, 
is only the lowest levels of the, of the electro of the electromagnetic levels. Right? There are levels that we can't see on the spectrum. The levels on the spectrum we can we can only see the tiniest, the tiniest sliver at the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of the spectrum. But there are thousands of le- levels we can't even see. We're blind to it. Not that they don't exist. We're just blind to it. We only are able to see our whole universe. Our whole conscious level of reality is just the, the, the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg or the tiniest sliver of the spectrum. And anything beyond it, we're totally blind and oblivious. The same thing is with sound. We're only able to hear and to pick up the lowest, lowest level of the spectrum of sound. But there are thousands and thousands of levels beyond it that we're deaf and we're blind. We don't see it. We don't hear it. And to us it doesn't exist because we, we, it's beyond our capacity to hear, to see, to absorb. So our whole level of reality is so, including the spiritual, our whole spiritual realm of higher levels of consciousness, the highest level imaginable, level of the angels is the lowest of the lowest of the lowest levels of the spectrum and beyond it there's thousands and levels that are totally beyond us we can't even begin to grasp we don't even have the tools with which to grasp to see to hear so we're blind deaf and dumb so our whole spectrum is so minute but since we don't see it and we don't hear it so to us it's as if it doesn't exist so we say we come from nothing, something from nothing. To us, it's nothing. <laughs> because we, we don't see it, we don't grasp it, we don't see we don't see God, we don't hear God. So to us, it's nothing. We call it nothing. This is reality to us. We are the drop of the ocean taken outside of the ocean. And the scientist sits and is dissecting reality and the, the, the quantifying it and defining it. And, but this is reality. The drop, you can't remove the drop of the ocean. The drop of the ocean is part of the ocean. But it's as if, miraculously, God took away the ocean and and we're left with a drop. And this drop suddenly becomes significant. It's like language. When does language happen? When do you notice language? When you're in the midst of the raw experience, you don't even notice language. It's not there. You can't even find it. You don't even feel it. When you're in the midst of the raw concept, you don't even notice language. In the subconscious, soul. It's only when you get to the lowest levels, when you start thinking about it, then suddenly words become prominent. And the further you get away from the soul, the more verbose you get. There's never been a society in history that's been more verbal and more verbose in our society. And yet there's so little soul and so little illumination and so little... The more you further you get away from the soul, the more verbose you get. And it just means you're just further and further away from the source, further away from the soul. When you have the raw experience, there are no words. It's beyond words. It's, and the words are, it's, and the closer you are to the soul, the more succinct it is. That's why thought, every minute that you think, you need five minutes to speak. Because in thought, the words are much more succinct. Because this thought is closer to the soul. So the closer you are to the soul, the less words, the less wordy. The further you get away from the soul, the more verbose you get. And then then you notice the words. But the closer you get to the soul, the less words. That's what we find the earlier generations, the holier the generations were, there were less words. The mission is very brief. It's when you get further and further away, suddenly for every Mishnah, one paragraph of the Mishnah, you need 10 pages of Talmud to explain. And for every page in the Talmud, as, you get, as the generations degenerated, now I need 20 commentaries just to explain one line in the Talmud. And you get to today's day and age, you need so many, so many pages just to explain one line or one word of the earlier rabbis who were so succinct and every word was so brilliant and every word contained so much light, such intense light. So the closer you get to the source, the less words there are. 
and it, when you, once you get to the source, there are no words. Words are meaningless. There are no words. What words? But within a human being, the words eventually leave the source, and therefore suddenly you start noticing the words. But within God, God's words never leave the source, never leaves God. God and His speech and everything that's created through His speech, it's all within God. It never leaves God. There's no space empty of God. So therefore, since God's speech never leaves God, therefore the words are within the source. So the words within the source, you can't find them. They have no meaning, have no value, have no significance. All there is is God. God remains totally unaffected. He's creating us, He's sustaining us, and yet not like the soul and the body. The soul is affected by the body. God remains totally unaffected by the body, by the creation. So man is really not connected. Oh. This, is a, this is an introduction to the point that is going to start explaining in the next few chapters. This is the foundation, the very fundamental foundation of Jewish faith. And that is the deep, penetrating understanding. And we affirm it twice a day by saying, Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel, God is our God, God is one. That yes, there's an unbridgeable chasm between God and the human being. Not only the human being, between God and the angel. Think all created beings. And that we have no way of approaching God. You could be the greatest mystic. You could be Mother Teresa herself. You could be the Buddha himself. You could be the most... You could be an angel meditating 24-7. No interruption for a thousand years or a million years. You won't become one iota closer to God. Because the essence of God remains a total mystery. Because the highest level that we can reach is we can reach the level of God's speech. We can acknowledge that God is speaking, God is communicating, and God is bringing us into existence. And that is the highest achievement of man. When a person lives with a consciousness, a feeling that God is speaking and God is creating us, and the world is suffused with the divine energy and God is constantly connected with us and speaking to us, that is the highest level that we can reach. But what is God's speech? God's speech in comparison to God is, is, is just like a speech within a human being. While the speech is within the source, within our soul, the speech doesn't exist. It has no value, no significance. It's not about speech, it's about the soul. There is nothing else but the soul. So God's speech, even while he's speaking, and after he's speaking, and while he's speaking, is within God, within the source. So the whole speech is meaningless. And so to God, the whole of creation is, is, is a non-event, a non-entity. So there remains an unbridgeable chasm between God and the human being, which becomes the very foundation of Judaism. Because how do we bridge the chasm? And the answer is, we don't. But God bridges the chasm. When God throws us a line, revelation, when God gives us a mitzvah, and He says, Sarala, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Leah, Yankel, Mendel, Beryl, do me a favor. Do a mitzvah for me. Light a Shabbos candle. Give a penny to charity. Be kind. That mitzvah creates a connection, a genuine connection with the essence of God. Not through religion, not through meditation, not through philosophy. A mitzvah. A physical mitzvah. Taking a physical match and lighting a Shabbos candle. Eating a kosher pastrami sandwich doing a mitzvah, eating a matzah and pesach, giving a penny, a physical penny, putting your hand into the pocket, taking out the penny, and giving it to a poor person in need, physically helping them. That is the only way, studying Torah, this is the only way to bridge the chasm. There is no other way. So God's throwing us a lifeline. God is throwing us a line. A rope that has 613 strands to it. That's the life lifeline, the rope. 613 mitzvot. It's a rope. It's made up of 613 strands. So this is the foundation of appreciating and understanding where Judaism comes from. While all religions emphasize the soul, the love, the spiritual, the sublime, the heavenly, Judaism emphasizes the bottom line, the deed, the action, the here and now. 
Fill your life with holiness. Fill every day of your life, your ordinary life, every day of your life, fill it with something Jewish, something godly, something holy. This is the whole purpose of creation. And the only purpose. And there is no other purpose. And there is no other reality. Now many people find this very threatening. This is really the source for anti-Semitism. Consciously or subconsciously. Because the Jew makes everyone feel very threatened, very uncomfortable. Because everyone takes existence for granted. And to the Jew, existence has no value. Has, is meaningless. Unless it's connected with God, it has no meaning, has no value. We can't respect the brilliant author. But he, but he beats his wife. The tree hugger. But he abuses his children. The great thinker and philosopher. But a horrible human being. Immoral human being. For a Jew, there's only one reality. And there is no other reality. The only reality is Hashem Echad. The reality of God, Torah, Mitzvah. There is no other reality. And consciously or subconsciously, this is a very threatening idea. And we don't even have to say anything. The Jew by his very being, a baby, a Jewish baby, this baby was enough to threaten Germany. The Germans did not feel safe. As long as there's one Jewish child in this world, they felt threatened. This Jew represents the truth that there is a God in this world. That this world is not a jungle. Life is not a jungle. And there is a God. And there is an absolute reality. And the Jew doesn't even have to say anything. Even if the Jew is not aware of it. A child, a baby. His very being, his very essence is God. We forget. But the world doesn't let us forget. The Jew by his very essence is godly. He speaks godliness. Every Jew that walks down Park Avenue is a walking miracle. He speaks godliness. A, demonstra a live demonstration of this truth that we're discussing here. The fact that this Jew has survived pogroms and the Holocaust and destructions and exiles is the biggest, is a walking, living proof for everything that we're discussing here. That there is no other reality but God. And that God remains totally unaffected by creation. And the world is, the entire world is nothing other than God's speech. And what is speech in comparison to the source? Well, while the speech is connected to the source, it's part of the source. And within God, the world and the speech has never left the source. And the entire universe, which is created by God's speech, and God's speech is part of the source. There is nothing other but God. There is no speech. There is nothing but God. So God remains totally transcendent and unaffected. Which is why the Jew is so stubborn. We also remain unaffected by the world. Where do we get the strength to stand up to the entire world? 99% of the world came down on us like a ton of bricks for 3,800 years. Harassed us, ridiculed us, maligned us. The entire world is against you. The Jew versus everyone else. And yet, we march along. Nothing stops us. Insuppressible. Because the Jew is in touch with this truth. There is no other reality but God. There are many non-Jews who are righteous Gentiles who realize who want to plug in, who want to connect, who realize that, that this is the only truth, this is the reality. The reality is that there is, there is a God and every human being was created for a divine purpose. And there are the seven Noahide laws which are applicable to six billion human beings and by every human being living a righteous life, a moral, ethical, and spiritual, a godly life, as taught in the Torah, then every human being can plug into this reality. Every human being can be part of this reality and become real. So this is the challenge for every human being. So. Well, just like we have our Ten Commandments and 613 details, there's also universal commandments. They're called the Seven Noahide Laws that were given to all the children of Noah who single-handedly saved the world. Noah was a non-Jew. He was a prophet. He was like Adam, he single-handedly saved the world. He was moral, he was ethical. The world was hopelessly corrupt, yet he maintained his morality and ethics. What an inspiring example, a role model for all of his children, all of his descendants, six billion people. That every human being has the ability to live up to his potential. Every human being is created in the image of God. And every human being has a divine purpose. And that's the question that every human being has to ask himself. And this is the message that the Jew 
is meant to inspire in every human being. Every human being has to ask himself the question, what is my divine purpose? What is my divine mission? Why did God create me? What am I doing in this world? What is life all about? There's a meaning, there's a purpose, there's a mission. And their mission is spelled out in the seven Noahide laws. A Jew's mission is spelled out in the Torah, in the Ten Commandments, 613 mitzvah. Oh, if I can spell that, yes. The seven Noahide laws, which are like their Ten Commandments, is you're not allowed to tear off a limb from a living animal. You're not allowed cruelty to animals. Um, it's, uh, you're not allowed to curse God. And you're not allowed to commit idolatry. You're not allowed to steal. You have to set up a court system. In other words, you have to have a civilized society. There's a, a court, there's law, a court of law. Um, you're not allowed to murder. You're not allowed to commit adultery. Those are the seven Noahide laws, but they're general categories. Just like you have the Ten Commandments, we have hundreds of details. There are hundreds of details. These are just the general, and basically it's the principle of living a moral, ethical, and spiritual life. A life filled with integrity, infused, suffused with a divine purpose and divine mission. Can we ever get those tools to convert them? We do get this. Is we got something better than tools. Better than just tools to get to another level, a higher level. We got the very essence. The very essence of God Himself. Every time you study Torah, every time a five-year-old Jewish child studies a Chumash and Rashi, a verse in the Torah, or the 99-year-old Talmudic genius, uh, great Kabbalist studies in depth, a difficult passage in the Talmud, a difficult passage of the Kabbalah, Every time you do a mitzvah, you are connecting to the very essence of God. So who needs tools? Who needs when you have the essence, when you have God himself? And that's why a Jew appreciates Torah. Torah is a joy. Torah is a pleasure. Torah is to live a Jewish life is something that we eagerly look forward. We bless God. We thank God for giving us Torah. We don't look at it as a burden, as obligations. We look at it, we thank God. What, what a gift, what an inheritance our parents, ancestors gave us, our parents gave us. They gave us a Jewish soul. And they gave us Torah mitzvah. What a blessing, what a gift, what an opportunity. We can touch the essence of God Himself. Every time we do a mitzvah, we can touch God directly, the essence of God. Be intimate with God Himself. What, what, what a, I mean, all the angels in the world would give everything they had just to be able to light a Shabbos candle, just to be able to put on tefillin, just to be able to give a penny to tzedakah. They don't have this opportunity. In heaven, they don't have this opportunity. Heaven is nothing in comparison to the riches that we have in this world. This, this is the richest, the greatest opportunity. Every moment of life is so precious. Every moment in this world, every moment we have to overcome a difficulty and overcome a struggle and do a mitzvah and do the right thing and physically, practically do the mitzvah. What a gift, what an opportunity. It's something we should do with joy and with enthusiasm and not feel as if it's a burden. And uh, this is, But this all comes from understanding. That's why we say twice a day, Shema Yisrael, listen carefully, get it. Grasp this idea, understand it. Realize that God is one. Because once you truly realize the idea that God is one, as explained here in great depth, that God is one and God is alone and God, just like God was alone before He created the world, He's alone after He creates the world, nothing changed. The world is, un- He's unaffected by the world, not like the soul that's affected by the body. God, while He's speaking and creating, He remains totally unaffected, totally transcends the entire universe. The more you understand it, the more you realize the gift, the preciousness, the gift of Torah and Mitzvah, of the Jewish way of life. The more pride you'll have in being Jewish, more you'll appreciate the Jewish soul. The soul that instinctively, innately, inherently knows this truth. What makes us Jewish? We have a Jewish soul. The Jewish soul has this faith. Knows with every fiber of our being and every bone in our body, we know deep down. And the non-Jew knows that we know it deep down. Consciously or subconsciously, know that a Jew is a holy people. The Jew is a godly people. And they know the reality of God. They stood at Sinai. They stood at Revelation. They have the secret. They have the key. They have the treasure. We should cherish it. Thank God every day. Thank God we're Jewish. 
Thank God for this gift. Thank God for Torah. Let's be proud of it. And take our responsibility seriously of teaching and communicating and being a light unto the nation. By personal example, showing the world how to lead a moral, ethical, and spiritual, and godly life that every human being should live with a sense of mission, a divine mission, divine purpose, because that's the only thing that makes life real. Anyone who's unplugged, anyone who's disconnected, anyone who doesn't live, doesn't feel like a, a Noahite, doesn't feel like a righteous Gentile, doesn't feel that they're living a life suffused with a sense of divine mission, a divine purpose, their life in the ultimate absolute sense, really has no meaning. Because there is no other reality but God. But when you plug in and you connect and you lead that type of life, then your life becomes genuine, meaningful, in the ultimate absolute sense of the word. Every human being has an indispensable role in God's world. Every human being. God didn't create a single extra human being. God needs six billion people. Every non-Jew has a unique role. As a non-Jew, we don't try to proselytize, we actually discourage proselytization because you don't have to be Jewish to be connected with God. God needs Jews and he needs non-Jews. Each one plays an indispensable role. But if every human being lived with a sense of divine mission and divine purpose, then this world would be a... That's the world of Mashiach. And this world would be a paradise. This world would be a garden of Eden. And it's imminent. It's any moment. It's, happening. it's going to happen any moment.